This week on Myths and Legends, it's a story from the Grimm Brothers, and it's a tale of love, family, abandonment, and evil mythological creatures with terrible Yelp ratings. You'll learn all about settling legal disputes for giants for fun and profit, and how the most beautiful love stories begin with the person you love watching strangers beat you mercilessly for three days. The creature this time is a Mythpod cat. They're just super cute cats dancing on their hind legs, inviting you to a cat dance party which might end with you finding love or being drained of your blood and set on fire. This is Myths and Legends, episode 121, King of the Mountain. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories, you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is from the Grimm Brothers, and, like many of their stories, it was collected in what is now Germany in the early 1800s. It's a fairy tale, so we'll just jump right in. The rich merchant had been a rich merchant until about 10 minutes ago. Well, in reality, it had been weeks maybe months, since the ships carrying nearly everything he owned were consumed by the sea, but he'd only learned about it 10 minutes ago. That's why he was currently out sitting in his field. That land was the last thing he owned, mainly because it was nearly worthless, and also mainly because it was really difficult to load a whole field onto a ship. His children, a baby boy and girl, rolled around in the grass by his side. Neither could walk yet. The father grimaced. His kids would never know the life he had planned for them. Their mother had died in childbirth, and now he was alone, with two children, no money, and no idea what to do. Hunching over the ground, he buried his face in his hands, and he wept. Oh, hey bud, cheer up, he heard from his left. The former rich man quickly wiped his face, and looked up through blurry eyes, and saw, whoa. A close-talking creature stood there holding out a hand, the other flat on his chest. Hey there, sinister-looking magic dwarf. How's it going? The creature greeted. Then he shrugged. He got it. People never wanted to shake hands these days, but, you know, a little politeness never hurt. The dwarf asked the merchant if, you know, maybe he wanted to talk about it. He seemed kind of down, and maybe the dwarf could help. It was true. The merchant did really need to talk. His only friends were business partners, and he wasn't super thrilled about oversharing in that circle. So he unloaded on the dwarf, who sat there with a sympathetic smile and an unredeemed offer for a hug. At the end of it, the dwarf sat there nodding. Of course, he could help the merchant, but the merchant laughed. How could the dwarf help him? Uh, magic, replied the dwarf. He was magical? He could probably get the merchant as much money as he could ever want, and before the merchant replied, the dwarf said he knew that was a lot of money. All the sad merchant needed to do was sign this contract, and the money would be his again. And, oh, okay. The merchant's hand was outstretched, asking for a pen. You're not going to read the contract? The dwarf asked. He couldn't believe it. The merchant said he skimmed it. It seemed pretty boilerplate. The dwarf bit his lip, narrowing his eyes. As far as evil contracts went, yeah, it was pretty boilerplate. But the merchant should really do more than just skim this one. Hardly blinking, The dwarf watched the man clearly skim the contract a second time. Yeah, like I said, pretty standard. Pen, please, said the merchant, grabby hand outstretched. 
The dwarf took a deep breath. You know what? Yeah, okay. This isn't really something I'll do, but I'll just hit the high points of the contract. I'll give you the money, but in 12 years' time, you have to come back with whatever rubs your leg when you first get home. That was it? The merchant shrugged. So the dwarf got his dog, or what was left of him in 12 years. No problem. The dwarf sighed again. That wasn't exactly what... You know what? His boss was always going on and on about how he was too nice. If the merchant wanted to sign the contract, the dwarf wasn't going to stand in his way anymore. Beaming, the man signed and dated the contract. The dwarf thanked him for his evil business, and the next time the man blinked, he was alone in a field with his two children. The dwarf was gone, leaving behind only the faint smell of brimstone, and a receipt that told the merchant he could win a $100 gift card if he went online and filled out a quick survey rating today's service. The man spent another hour in the field playing happily with his children before heading home. He had some stops to make first, to tell his business partners about the loss of his ships, that it was all gone. No one was as heavily invested as the merchant, so they all took it better than going to cry alone in a field. And by the time the merchant reached home, he was no longer thinking about the dwarf. That is, until something rubbed his leg. As he looked down to greet his dog, he realized the elderly mutt was still making his way across the room. No. No. He had set his kids down in their bassinets when he returned, and he was so consumed by grief over the money that he hadn't heard the bassinet tumble over, and the boy begin to crawl. When he made it to one of the chairs at the table, he pulled himself up, and he took his first steps. The young child was so excited that he tottered over to daddy, and he gave him a big hug. Fear and sickness washed over the merchant. His head began to feel light. But then he shook the thought from his head. No, the dwarf wasn't real. He had just been distraught. Yeah, he just made the whole thing up. The merchant bent down and scooped up his son, his heart pounding as he strode across the room to his wooden chest. For the first time, he was afraid to find money in it, afraid of what it would mean. He gulped and threw open the chest. Ah, oh, it was empty. He breathed for the first time in a minute. All right, if the dwarf was real, he'd just been messing with him. A month later, the dad lifted the door to the attic so quietly he could hear mice scurrying away. He lit a lantern and dust filtered down into the room below. He was climbing up into the attic to scrape tin out of the family heirlooms so he and his kids would maybe not starve. So yeah, everything was going really great. And, hmm, why was it so bright up there? The merchant had placed his lantern in the attic before continuing the climb. But the room looked as though it were on fire. In really the best way possible. It was packed, floor to ceiling, with gold. The dwarf had come through on his promise. At nearly 13 years of age, the boy walked with his father. You're not really going to do it though, right? His father grimaced. Of course he wasn't going to do it. He picked up his cloak to keep the golden fringes from dragging across the muddy field. Twelve years on, and he still hadn't done anything with the field. The difference was that this time, it wasn't the merchant's only possession. But he gave you everything, the son replied. Do you really want to make a creature like that angry? He might have given the merchant everything, but his children would always be his everything. 
the merchant replied. Ah, and here he was. Do you have what you promised me? The dwarf shrieked. And also, a five out of ten on the survey? Seriously? Boldly, the merchant's son yelled out that there was nothing for the dwarf here. The dwarf was trespassing on his father's property. But the father held up a hand. Wait here, he told his son. He'd go talk to the dwarf. And he'd work something out. The autumn leaves crunched beneath his boots as the father ventured closer to the creature who had saved him from ruin and given him a future. Slowly, he knelt down before the creature, and he froze. Grinning, the dwarf pushed past the father and started walking toward the boy. That was cute. He thought daddy was going to work out a new deal. There was no new deal, only the one his father worked out years ago, the one that the dwarf would see fulfilled. Today, the boy screamed for his father, help him, make the dwarf stop anything, but the merchant remained frozen in place. He wouldn't be coming to his son's aid. One solitary tear trickled down the boy's cheek, but then he shook his head. He wiped his eyes and clenched his jaw. It might be worthless. What could you do against a creature who could see 12 years into the future? But he would do all he could. The boy ran toward the sea, and the dwarf followed, slowly. The boy breathed harder and harder, and then he saw it. The boat. It was the rowboat the dwarf had taken to the field. It had to be. The boy just had to get to it, and then he would be safe. The dwarf was moving so slowly that the boy was in the boat, and nearly a hundred meters away from land before the creature made it to the shoreline. The boy could barely see him, and the dwarf stopped. The boy had gotten away. He was safe. Though, as far as the boy could tell, the dwarf, standing alone there on the shore, seemed to be smiling? The merchant's son didn't know where the dwarf had come from, but it had to be close. There were no supplies on board, no food or water, but the dwarf was a mythological creature, so maybe he didn't need it. Anyway, the boy went without anything for the three-day ride on the open sea. When at last the boat scraped to a rest on some rocks, the boy used what last strength he had to climb over the edge and drag himself to a nearby lake. He spent a cold night huddled in the woods, and when morning came, he noticed a castle looming on the horizon. In time, he passed through the arches, dodging the crumbling stones after pushing aside the rusty gates. He looked up toward the cold windows, two eyeless sockets gazing out on the wilderness of the forest. The boy sighed. So much for courtesy and a hot meal. His hunger stabbed at him again. He really needed to find something, but given his upbringing as a super rich merchant's son, he hadn't learned to hunt or fish. Maybe this castle had some jerky or tack that the rats hadn't got to yet. 17 rooms later, the boy was beginning to think that something was up. Not only did the palace not have any food, it didn't have anything at all. No beds, chairs, tables, decorations, nothing. Every room and hallway was swept completely clean. He ventured to the last door in the highest hallway, knowing what he would find when he opened it. Nothing. But he was wrong. Beyond the door sat a snake, coiled in the center of the room. The boy let out a small shriek and started to slide the thick oak door across the floor when he heard something. A wait. He stopped and looked at the snake. Did, did the snake talk? The snake nodded. And, okay, maybe this was a weird question. Did the snake sound like really attractive? The snake bobbed her head to either side. Why, thank you. She wasn't trying to sound sultry or anything. This was just how she normally talked. 
Feeling relieved, the boy opened the door fully. Okay, wow, cool, even better. Follow-up question though, what's going on exactly? The boy huddled in one of the other rooms of the castle. They had between nightfall and midnight to find him. The snake explained that huddled was best, you know, for avoiding damage to any internal organs. The snake, of course, was a beautiful princess. She and her entire kingdom had been struck by a sorcerer, and she had been waiting 12 years for the one who would save them. The boy had been the first visitor in years, and she needed him. The kingdom needed him. To her credit, she was up front with what it took. He would need to sleep by the castle. Any room would do. At dusk, they would come for him. And when they found him, they would beat him. They would stab him, bash him, gouge out his eyes. Everything. He just had to endure it until midnight. If he could do that, then he would be saved. She had been given the water of life, and she could heal him. Then the curse will be broken? The boy asked. Yeah. You know, after two more nights of merciless beatings. Hmm. The boy thought about it for a moment. He didn't have a home now. He didn't have any food or any place to sleep. His life was pretty much worthless. So he figured he might as well put it to good use. He nodded and told the very attractive sounding snake that he would do it. Now, the boy was playing the very worst type of hide and seek as he heard the men lower in the castle, the chains scraping the floor as they searched. He breathed a sigh of relief as the sound faded, and he rose from the corner, just in time to see his door thrown open, and the men flooding in. He didn't lose consciousness during any of it, though the men whipped him with chains, stabbed him, broke his legs, everything that came to their minds until midnight when they suddenly vanished. That was when the boy lost consciousness. He awoke the next morning, not to multiple stab wounds or broken legs, but a healed body, though he was laying in a pool of his own dry blood. The snake said it was really hard to get the lid off the bottle of the water of life, but she managed. Night one of three was complete. Somehow, the other nights were even worse. The second night, he was in the deepest corner of the dungeon, and the night after that, he was on the roof. It didn't matter. They still found him. They were completely impassive, just doing their job. The morning after the third night, he didn't wake up in a bare room, but one with tapestries and carpets and a fire and her. The snake, back to being a princess, was standing over him in bed. He had done it. He had saved them all. Eight years later, the boy, now the king, watched his own son taking his first steps. He had become the king of the Golden Mountain, the palace he rescued by enduring those three torturous nights. He had married the princess who had once been a snake and learned what had happened to the land. At 21, the son of the merchant who had escaped at 13 with nothing was now a king. He sighed. His father. He remembered his father. He knew the date he had left. It was eight years eight years to the day, and he still thought about the man. He didn't even know his son was out there. He didn't know he had escaped safely from the dwarf. He didn't know he was a king. Finally, the boy couldn't stand it. He told his wife he had to go back. He had to see his father. The queen pursed her lips. She knew he couldn't be persuaded otherwise, but if he returned, he wouldn't like what he found. The young king shrugged. 
His father thought he was gone forever, but the boy was a king now. Walking to the window, the queen said it wasn't for her to say, but did he even know the way there? And if he got there, would he know the way back? When the young man didn't answer, she slammed a ring down on the table. Here, it was magic, obviously. He could wish for anything, to be anywhere, and it would be done. Her only wish, don't bring her into this. She didn't want to see the man. He agreed, put on the ring, and wished himself back to his hometown. We'll see how this trip home changes everything, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. For the last time, no, you can't go in, the sentry said to the king. The young man stood outside his own town, and the sentries were giving him trouble. Apparently it was his clothes. Maybe he was a king. Maybe he was a sorcerer. They didn't know. What they did know was that the young man wasn't getting in. Ten minutes, and one incredibly overdressed shepherd boy trading his clothes to the young man later, and the king found himself inside the town. For all his money, the boy's father still lived in the same house. The boy hadn't seen it since that day. The boy hadn't seen it since that day. He took a deep breath and knocked on the door. The father threw open the door and looked on the boy. Then he slammed it again. The boy knocked again, insisting that he was the man's son. Actually, now a king. He was alive. Through the door, the merchant shouted that his son was dead. And the boy wasn't a king. He was a shepherd. and He wanted money get out before he called the sentries. His father was always harsh on beggars. Then the boy remembered. He had the birthmark, he yelled. The house was silent. Just underneath his arm, the birthmark that looked like a raspberry. With a click and a scrape, the old merchant cracked open the door. Son? The last thing the father had seen was the boy being dragged off by a magical dwarf. And now the boy was saying that he wasn't just alive, but a king and a father? The son nodded, beaming. But wait, the father paused. It's just, why was he dressed like that then? The young man explained, again, that the sentries wouldn't let him into town as he was dressed before. Yeah, yeah, the young man had said that. They wouldn't let him in because his clothes were too nice? The young man shrugged. To be fair to the sentries, he legitimately did look like a sorcerer, but wait, the father didn't believe him? His father laughed. It didn't matter what he believed. What mattered was that his son was home and safe. Already, the son was making his way to the adjacent room. In it, he held his ring and made a wish. In an instant, his wife was standing before him, arrayed like the queen she was. The young man gripped her hand there was someone he wanted her to meet. Both the father and the queen were speechless, but for different reasons. The father was speechless because his son was telling the truth. The boy was a king. The merchant was a grandfather. But the wife shook her head. She couldn't believe this. She nodded at her father-in-law and told her husband she would be outside. She didn't want to be here for this. Wow, married? Nice. The father exclaimed after the queen had left the room. 
And a king? And you came back? I thought you'd never forgive me for what I did back there. But I knew you'd understand. You're my son. The boy paused. Wait, what? The smile on the father's face faded as he saw the confusion on his son's. He quickly changed the subject, but the son brought it right back. Wait, the father... The father had tried to talk to the dwarf, right? He had been frozen because of the dwarf's magic. Right? There was no answer. But the look on the father's face told the boy all that he needed to know. Wait, did you... Did you trade me for gold? The father chuckled. No, of course not. Taking a step closer, the boy asked his father again. Had he just knelt there like a coward? Did he even try to work out a new agreement with the dwarf? The father stopped chuckling and cleared his throat. No, he didn't. He traded the boy. But what did it matter? He escaped, didn't he? The young man couldn't speak as he rushed from the house. His father, begging forgiveness, trailed closely behind. When the young man found the queen, she took his hand. I know, she said. Together, they left his hometown, never once looking back. Later that afternoon, the queen shook the young man awake. He had sat down by a river, weeping, and he had fallen asleep. The queen said she had something she needed to tell him. She was leaving. Instantly, the young man sat up. Yeah, the queen said she had asked one thing of the young man. One, and he had broken that oath by using the ring to bring her to him. He rolled his eyes. He was sorry, okay? They'd go home and work it out. He was king. She couldn't leave him. You so sure about that? The young man looked down. He wasn't wearing the ring anymore. She had taken it off him while he slept. He couldn't breathe. Not her, too. She pursed her lips and she made a wish. In an instant, she was gone. The young man had no cash, no fancy clothes, no idea how to get back to the Golden Mountain, and he had been abandoned, once again, by someone he loved. I don't know why Dad made you the executor of his will, the giant said to his brother. Uh, maybe because I'm the only one that went into the family business? Okay, you know what, Dave? Eating peasants isn't a business. It's barely even a hobby. Hmm. Well, who cares what either of you think? I'm the boss now. Okay, we're down to the last three items, Dave the giant said to his giant brothers. First up was Dad's sword. It was super handy at work, Dave said, because if you say, all heads off but mine, it'll take all heads off but yours. Next up was an invisibility cloak. Really, just your standard invisibility cloak. Nothing that special about it other than it being an invisibility cloak. Last was a pair of boots. All you had to do was put them on, and anywhere you wanted to be, they would take you there. That sounded super handy. Dave glanced down at the paper. And none of that mattered, because as executor of the will, and dad's objective favorite, he got all three things. Now, if they didn't mind, he was going to take their small business public, in that he was going to go to a public place and eat a bunch of peasants. One of the brothers objected. He demanded to see the will. Uh, can you even read? Dave asked. The brother said no, 
And Dave shrugged. Cool. Be my guest. I can read. The three giants heard from the forest. They turned to see a young man standing there, wearing the clothes of a shepherd. Dave smiled. Excellent. A peasant. He began salivating. It was time to open for business. He felt a hand stop him on his chest. It was his brother, stopping him long enough for the other brother to hand him dad's will. Okay, yeah, uh, Dave lied, the young man said. You divide the items up evenly after drawing lots for them. Dave growled, but the other brothers nodded. They knew it. It says here, though, that you need to test out the items to see if they're real. Who wants to go first? Dave raised his hand. Wait a minute, another brother cried out. Dave was absolutely just going to test whatever item he wanted to take, and then just leave with it. The brother saw right through that ruse. No, it needed to be an impartial party. Someone without any skin in the game. They looked down at the helpful, literate peasant standing before them. It didn't take as long as the young man thought it would for them to draw that conclusion. The young man bargained for some gold he would never get, and offered to test out the invisibility cloak first. Is it working? I can still see myself... Are you supposed to still be able to see yourself? The giant said they couldn't see him. It was working. Now onto the boots. Cool. Hey, guys. I'm really sorry about your dad. I just lost my own dad recently. Well, in more of a metaphorical sense. So I kind of know what you're going through. Also, I'm robbing you. You probably notice I'm already wearing the boots. They've disappeared. And I have the sword now, too. Let this be a lesson to you. Never trust anyone. Ever. That moment, the young man said the name of the Golden Mountain and he had an experience that he did not want to repeat ever again. The boots ran by themselves, super fast, through forests, valleys, and over the sea, until he stood before the tower where, nine years ago, he had spent those three fateful nights. And apparently, there was a wedding going on. He had been wandering the wilderness, looking for a way home for months. But in that time, the princess began to feel pressure from her court. The boy king, her son, was too young to rule. And none of the courtiers would have her as regent after what happened to her father. She had to remarry. The queen found a good man that she could be reasonably sure wouldn't kill her son before he came of age. She set a date, not knowing that, at the wedding feast, her old husband would be in attendance. He wasn't just in attendance, though. He was right behind her. Still under the invisibility cloak, the young man waited until her back was turned and snatched her plate. She turned back and looked down, swallowing hard. With a quivering voice, she demanded some wine. Then it, too, disappeared the second she turned away. She started shaking. A lone tear came to her eye. It was happening again. When the sorcerer who turned her into a snake first attacked their kingdom, it started with the food disappearing. Then the drink. Then the peasants turned on the nobles, and the nobles turned on the king. The princess was only spared because she had been turned into a snake. Soon, everything disappeared. And, content that he had done enough, the sorcerer left. Now, after nearly 20 years, he was back. Of course, the young man knew all of this. His wife had told him how the kingdom had fallen. And his little show at the wedding feast was meant to trigger that panic. To get her alone. She started hyperventilating and ran from the room. He followed silently behind. It was done. It was supposed to be done. Did her deliverer not come? 
she asked aloud. Just then, the invisibility cloak dropped from the young man, and he was standing before her. He slapped her on the face. He had come home, and she had betrayed him. That would never happen again. The queen sneered. She had told the court everything that had happened. How the king cried all about his little daddy. They were glad to be rid of him. They would never accept him. The young man sighed. Yeah, that was probably the case. Stay here. He will be right back. In the main room, the feast had continued. Until the groom collapsed in his soup, a sore protruding from his back. All the lords and ladies shouted murder, but the young man held up both hands and told them to sit. He was feeling gracious, and he would give them all one more chance. Everyone laughed and started to advance. They were all armed, you see, and he was just one man with one sword. What could he possibly do? The young man sighed. That's how it was going to be, huh? All right. All heads off but mine. From the other room, the queen heard dozens and dozens of things thudding to the ground outside. And then, it was completely silent. She pushed open the door to see the hall, empty save for her first husband, standing there staring across the room, and her late husband, face down in a bowl of soup. Slowly, the queen ventured forward, realizing that the room wasn't empty. It was full of corpses. That's when she saw two more things. The king, standing there stark white and terrified, and a solitary dwarf walking among the dead while he drained his glass, leaving the king of the Golden Mountain with his subjects. Okay, so that dwarf bit, I added that in at the end because I found a way to tie the story together. I felt like it was too convenient the 12-year timeline. The first time we met the princess in snake form, she had been there for 12 years, exactly when the dwarf had made the deal with the merchant. My thinking is that the princess's kingdom was taken over by a sorcerer, and, as the last dying act of the king, he wished for two things, his daughter's safety and revenge for the nobles who betrayed him. In exchange, he had to hand over all of his gold. Who finds the gold? The merchant who had just agreed to trade over his son. The dwarf could see 12 years into the future to know that he was going to get the boy. Why not well enough to know that the boy would escape on the boat, destroy his own marriage, and find a way back to fulfill the dwarf's agreement to the father, with the daughter being physically safe, you know, in a sense, and the nobles being dead. The dwarf, then, is just an agent of chaos, a monkey's paw that gives people what they want, no matter the consequences. This story, to me, was also about abandonment. The boy had been abandoned by his father and his wife. He was forever searching for his place in the world. And, in the end, he found it. He would never be abandoned again, because anyone who had meant anything to him was either dead or terrified of him. He had found his place. He was king, but only a king of a pile of heads. Next week, we're going to be playing with fate again in a story from India. And it goes exactly as well as you think it would for a folktale story about a king trying to fight fate. This week on Fictional, our other podcast where we basically do this but with stories from classic lit, we are beginning the conclusion of The Count of Monte Cristo. 
the epic French novel of love, loss, revenge, and redemption. It's one of my favorite stories. You can find the show at fictional.fm by searching fictional wherever you get your podcasts or by just following the link in the show notes. Creature this time is the Elay, another myth podcast. This time it's from Romania. The Elay is a large, vampiric, bipedal cat that just loves to have dance parties, fall in love, and maybe set you on fire and drive you insane. I am so sorry to take all the fun out of life, but if you see a group of four foot tall cats dancing together in a field, just hopping around adorably on their little kitty hind legs, do not join in. I know, it's super tempting and they might not kill you, which I know makes it all the more appealing. But still, there are far too many downsides for so few upsides. The downsides being, of course, that the cats will somehow seduce you and drain you of your blood. Not sure that I know how that works. Not sure that I wanna know how that works. If they can't lure people to their dance parties, they're content with sheep. Or if they really need to scrape, they can slowly drain a human child's life energy if they dance with the Elay. The upsides of dancing with the cats are finding love. If you've ever wanted to take home a four-foot-long cat that might set you on fire, then fingers crossed. If the cat manages to fall in love with you, congrats. It's now completely under your control, which, of all the mythological creatures we've covered, a normal cat that actually listens and cares about a person is probably the rarest of them all. I also found a version that's more like a nymph from Greek mythology. There are groups of more human-like attractive women dancing at crossroads, ponds, rivers, on tops of trees, or by the oddly specific abandoned fireplaces. They punish people who refuse to dance, but if you show up and maybe don't know how to dance and just mimic their movements, they'll think you're making fun of them. The creature, the cat version at least, is not without its friends. If you fall into the extremely broad category of a Romanian shepherd who plays the pipes very well, you're implicitly under the Eli's protection, whether you realize it or not. Completely separate from their dance parties, the cats are known to pick up their own instruments and just jam along with any shepherd who plays. Every write-up I've read on this creature talks about how they might drive you insane, paralyze you, or set you on fire, but they just sort of mention it at the end, seriously burying the lead in my opinion. One place seemed to indicate that the punishment was only in cases of revenge, and if there's any animal that I trust to be super calm and not strike out at me for no reason whatsoever, it's definitely a cat. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>